0: I'm Alex Shaw
1: I'm Sharon Shaw And And welcome welcome to
0: to School of Movies (laughs) Brotherhood of the Wolf
2: A mysterious beast is ravaging the countryside No man, woman or child can escape it The blood-stained hills mark its path face the challenge, and confront the evil. Where no soldier or hunter could prevail, these men will not rest until it's destroyed. Universal Pictures and Studio Canal Proudly present to American audiences, the French motion picture sensation, Brotherhood
0: of the Wolf. With us is Alastair Stewart of Escape Artists, Inc. Was she I say, Hello. Escape Artists, Inc. or Incorporated?
3: I always say Escape Artists, Inc. And it's the funny right. thing is we're not even Incorporated. It just sounds cool. Okay, so, cool <laughs> i <run> with her. <laughs> Hello, Alastair.
0: Hi, how's it going? You might remember Alastair from our shows on Sneakers. He was on our first Stranger Things show. And you'll definitely remember his star turn on our Pacific Rim episode, where I think he just floored us with his insight on... Uh, uh, what's Herc's son called again? I'm, I'm going to look now. Either way, it was just like... Chuck. Chuck. Uh, was it Chuck? Chuck? I think it was there Chuck, yeah. Your insight on Chuck just blew us away on that one. Oh, um, thank you. And The Drift, now that I can recall it. Absolutely classic episode. Um... Uh, Alistair also played the dashing lawyer, Quincy P. Matthews, the daredevil Scarlet Pimpernel of a lion lawyer in Tiger's Eye, as well as Oberon's brother Ajax in The Princess Thieves. It is great to have you back, Alistair.
3: It's so good to be back. How you guys been?
0: We've been... I mean, it's 2020, so...
1: (laughs) So everything Uh, is relative.
0: Yeah, asterisk. Um, Because of when this came out, by the way, it is probable that we, all three of us, saw it in the same cinema in York in October 2001, almost exactly 19 years ago. I could be wrong. Did you see it in the
3: cinema? Yeah. Yeah? God, it might be the same night.
0: Oh, my God. (laughs) Well, I mean, it's appropriate, is all I'm saying. that's okay so i've got a quite lengthy intro on this one it's not so much an essay as a big old synopsis to sort of set the scene Uh, this film is also known as le pacte de loup uh, and it might be the first french language film we have ever done on this show which feels bad after so many years (laughs) And while it was a successful international blockbuster in its own right, I'd say it's more accurate to call this a cult favorite. And our expectation is that the majority of you listeners won't have seen it and might not even have access to it. Now, we're going to give you a show wherein you don't have to have seen it. And we will give you plenty of things to appreciate when you track it down. And we hope you will now the easiest way is just DVD I found it for about five bucks on eBay when I looked recently but wherever you are make sure it has a French language track and subtitles in your preferred language because the dub takes all the elegance away at least the English dub does Uh, that's the budget option but this film is gorgeous and if you want a truly cinematic experience track it down in HD I do not know if it's streaming anywhere it's definitely not on Prime There have been various Blu-rays released over the years, including editions in Korea and Germany and Brazil and Italy and Australia and England and France. And I would suggest you buy whichever one will definitely play in your region with French language and whatever subtitles you're going to be using, yes? The
1: Canadian is probably the best one for anybody in America to chase.
0: There isn't a Canadian one. Is there not? No, there's a Canadian DVD, but not a Canadian Blu-ray. Right. You may have to go on a hunt for this one, which is appropriate. And you can check on blu-ray.com for details. Just enter Brotherhood of the Wolf with the little worldwide symbol there, so it'll just look for every version. And that's always my go-to site, blu-ray.com, and it will tell you there whether it'll play, whether it's region locked to that specific, you know, etc and it's about 18 bucks on average in places like eBay Uh, there's several cuts of the film but don't worry too much about getting one version over the other there's roughly 11 minutes of material in the middle removed for pacing in some territories it's not essential though I do personally prefer the longest version with the transfer on the French Blu-ray I got my French Blu-ray from Amazon.fr and uh, it it was about like 15 pounds or something like that it's beautiful to be entirely accurate, the first version I bought was the lavish 3-disc French DVD box set way back in the early 2000s. That one is bound up like a leather book with fabulous interior art and tons of features, none of which, I found to my chagrin, had English subtitles. So I bought the Canadian version of the same thing, which did have those subs because bless you bilingual Canucks. However, The box was fairly plain, so I kept the discs in the French book. Then over the years, I picked up the British Blu-ray, which is the shortest version available. And for this show, I bought the French Blu-ray, which is the longest and, as far as I know, the best looking. So I keep both the French and English Blu-rays, along with one of the Canadian discs of DVD extras, in the French book box making it maybe the most lovingly curated film in my collection. That should give you some inkling as to how I feel about this weird, rare thing going in. And this film was directed by Christophe Gans, the man behind the 1995 live-action adaptation of the manga and 1988 anime Crying Freeman. This starred Mark Dacascos, who many of you have seen in John Wick 3 as Zero, the grim, taunting, sword-wielding bad guy who turns out to be a goofball fanboy who still unwisely tries to kill John Wick. Mark Dacascos is in this film, Brotherhood of the Wolf, and if you're into 90s movies or martial arts films, you may remember him from such capoeira spectaculars as Only the Strong. And as the entirely mismatched brother in the live-action Double Dragon movie... Mark played Jimmy Lee, the brother who can do kickboxing, as opposed to Billy Lee, the little stinker played by Scott Wolfe, who can only
3: complain. <laughs> he knows full well that if Robert Patrick gets the other half of this, supposedly he's invincible. And the, the world's, world's going to end. end yeah. right? Yeah. Because it's such a powerful amulet. So they're all there. Everybody's present. Okay. He's getting his ass kicked. And he's like, yeah, this fucking stupid amulet. I just can't figure it out. And he rips it off his neck and he throws it away. (laughs) He throws it away. And this thing stops in midair. Very crappy effects. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then it like comes back to him like a Mm. fucking magnet or something. And he's like, oh, that's how I – oh, I did it. And I'm like, dude. You just threw away the world, you, because you, you had a temper tantrum, and you threw away the world. All those times I tried to rub it on my crotch, it never worked. <laughs> Not once. And if it doesn't work with my dick, I don't want it. Get it away, Scott Wolf.
0: Mark was also in one other film that we've covered, The Island of Dr. Moreau, where he played a cat man. It was also in the Jet Li film Cradle to the Grave as Ling and probably his best other movie is Drive, the 1997 one, not to be confused with Drive 2010 with Ryan Gosling. Uh, Drive really showcases his abilities in a low budget super soldier sci-fi. Crying Freeman, directed by Gans again, is surprisingly glossy and it's a pared-down and focused martial arts assassin actioner, but with a sensual eye, capturing Mark in various states of lethal butt-nakedness. This carries across to Brotherhood of the Wolf, which features a brothel as a key location, repeatedly visited, and quite a lot of flesh, tying in with its sexy, bodice-ripping aesthetic. Because the alchemy on screen is not something people will be used to, making it quite hard to sell to general audiences. I can tell you various movies that it feels quite like. Uh, Sleepy Hollow immediately sprang to mind in terms of plot and period setting. Jaws also kind of leaps to mind along with Predator, insofar as there's something out there that's killing people and the hunter becomes the hunted. An Obscure Link is a Val Kilmer film from the late 90s, just around about the time he finished Doctor Moreau, The Ghost in the Darkness. I also figure that there are elements of this movie that are more Assassin's Creed than the shitty Assassin's Creed film that everyone waited for forever and then forgot existed brotherhood has also been influential on my own work and if you've read or listened to my books uh, when you watch this thing it will call to mind the manticore hunt in arlington and elements of let them go and just the whole relationship with nature there's also something a bit like hot fuzz in brotherhood of the wolf and once you've seen both films or listened to this show you'll probably know why It's too much of a fancy period drama for martial arts movie fans, and it's too full of martial arts to satisfy fancy dedicated aficionados of period drama. What it's close to is one of the martial art house wushu films, like House of Flying Daggers or Hero or, at a stretch, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, only by way of a French Barry Lyndon. Those who got to see director Christophe Gann's 2014 live-action La Belle et la Bête will know what to expect. In some regards this film, which same as Brotherhood stars Vincent Cassell, this time as the beast, is in many ways superior to the Disney remake, more concerned with creating a version of the story you will remember as distinct than in repackaging elements we've already loved in animation for decades. Gans’s vision has more in common with the 1946 Jean Cocteau adaptation in terms of dreamlike imagery and just sheer Frenchness. But this film, Le Pacte de Loup, is an unsettling mix of genres and styles. It's a gothic romance, it's a monster hunt, it's a swashbuckling adventure preoccupied with frock coat repartee, roundhouse kicks and big luscious bosoms. It's anachronistic while striving to evoke a specific era. It's serious but playful, graceful yet adolescent, courtly yet red in tooth and claw, sometimes blunt yet at others deeply moving and melancholy. What it isn't is dull and generic. It's an intoxicating cocktail that will draw a strong response, even if that response is, well, this is just ridiculous, and we've been waiting a long, long time to talk to you about it. So the film is based partly on a legend with a thrilling story kind of woven around it. In many ways, that's another aspect of uh, New Century in that you know I, I sort of take things that are actually real and actually did happen and then just sort of weave in my fiction around that. Um, The way we're going to do this is to hold back the secrets and skullduggery that takes place in the third act, where it diverges from historically recorded elements wildly. And those will all be in the final section of this podcast, so you folks can all listen up until then. I'll give you a warning, and you can either go see the film and come back, or carry on listening for the full plot and final analysis. The Beast of Jevoudin is the historical name associated with a man-eating animal which terrorised the former province of Gévaudan in the Marguerite Mountains of south-central France between 1764 and 1767. The attacks, which covered an area spanning 90 kilometres, were said to have been committed by one or more beasts with formidable teeth and immense tails according to contemporary eyewitnesses. Most descriptions from the period identify the beast as a wolf, or a dog, or a wolf-dog hybrid. Victims were often killed by having their throats torn out. The Kingdom of France used a considerable amount of money and manpower to hunt the animals responsible, including the resources of several nobles, soldiers, royal huntsmen, and civilians. Descriptions of the time vary wildly, and reports may have been... Greatly exaggerated due to public hysteria, but the beast was generally described as a wolf-like canine with a tall, lean frame capable of taking great strides. It had an elongated head similar to that of a greyhound with a flattened snout, pointed ears, and a wide mouth sitting atop a broad chest. The beast's tail was also said to have been notably longer than a wolf's with a tuft at the end. The beast's fur was described as tawny or russet in colour, with its back streaked with black and white, and heart-shaped patterns were noted on its underbelly. Many hunters were sent out to find the beast, and the heroes of this film are fictionalised composites. Chevalier Grégoire du Fronsac is a knight and an explorer, a naturalist and a taxidermist, who spent some time in the Americas and he's been sent here by Louis XV of France. Fransac is young and blonde and very French, cocky but sly, somewhat jaded with the behavior of men that he's witnessed, and he's a philandering pig, content to go behind women's backs. Basically, he's gambit with a little more drive to do some good. He and his companion ride in through the pouring rain like it's a western, set to moody acoustic guitar twanging, dressed in long leather coats, tricorn hats, and packing an arsenal of weapons ranging from dual pistols to quarterstaffs to a blunderbuss to spinning daggers and a striking tomahawk. Mani is a silent man of Iroquois Mohawk extraction who is fantastically good at fighting. They make contact with the local aristocrats and Father Henri Sardis, the priest of these parts. All of the nobles seem a little edgy and furtive with having agents of the king in their midst to investigate their glaring monster problem. Fransac and Mani's host is the young Marquis Thomas d'Apsher, a naive, good-hearted young nobleman fascinated by his exotic guests. It is noteworthy that the film begins not at this point, but some 30 years after the main events during the French Revolution, where a now middle-aged Thomas looks back with bittersweet nostalgia on these events some 30 years previously, calling to mind the beginning of Phantom of the Opera.
1: That does rather put into um, perspective the events of the French Revolution, that he is thinking wistfully and longingly of the days when people were getting their throats ripped out by wolves. (laughs) Ah,
0: what a sweet time that was.
1: (laughs) Oh, my sweet summer child. Outside
0: see, uh, the beginning, outside the window of his chateau is a baying mob with pitchforks and torches here for his blood. So he casts his mind back to these this strange coming of age that he went through. Thomas is mostly a placid observer in these events, and the plot is pushed forward by Fronsac smelling a rat and pushing further and further into his investigations of where the beast is coming from and why its attacks seem so weirdly targeted. Comparisons with The Hound of the Baskervilles may be entirely justified. Back in the past, François begins to fall for Marianne de Morangias, the daughter of a local landowner. She is virginal, pure, sweet-natured, but wary of charming men who might want to take advantage of her. She is watched over by her creepy, bedraggled older brother, Jean-Francois, played by Vincent Cassell. JF has only one arm after a terrible attack he suffered while hunting, and he is very protective of his sister. The young Marquis brings Fransac and Mani to a bordello filled with beguiling courtesans, some of whom are scared of the Iroquois and his tattoos, though at least one of them definitely isn't afraid that he might be a sorcerer. Gazing at this beautiful, rejected, exotic man with a measure of lip-biting lust. While he's there shopping for a romp in the sack, Fransac meets Sylvia, played by Monica Bellucci, a mysterious tarot card reader who is apparently extremely expensive and tends to bring daggers to bed with her for protection and because that appears to be her kink. She shows interest in his business and in his past and they conduct an extremely sexual relationship, all the while he's wooing Marianne in a chaste fashion like the pig that he is. However, Sylvia scares him and the Chevalier begins to realise the hidden dangers that are around them. And all the while, the beast... Preys on young shepherdesses picking them off in the wild with no hope of rescue, in scenes reminiscent of Jaws. Grand hunts are organised by the gentry, and dozens of wolves are slain by ineffectual fops who chase them out of the forests on horseback. At the periphery are other characters, including La Bavarde, the magpie, a beguiling half-wild woman, and a member of a group that we're going to call Romany on this podcast, but who are referred to by the G-word, ...everywhere in this film. She and her companions catch the eye of Francais and Mani... ...but it's unclear as to whether they are allies or a threat... ...despite our heroes saving this unspeaking woman... ...from a mob of thugs badly dressed as women at the beginning... ...hoping to lure in the beast... ...but content to beat Romani people like the magpie... ...and her father the healer to death... Around the middle of the film, a big wolf is caught and killed, and in the extended edition, Fransac's job is to stuff its carcass for display to the rich as a trophy, proclaiming that the beast of Javudan has been caught and killed, and let's hear no more about it. This is roughly in line with what actually happened in real life, a convenient ending to the legend featuring a smallish stuffed wolf. Fronsack and company are then dismissed. Even um, the uh, Robert Louis Stevenson, the writer of Treasure Island, uh, commented that uh, the wolf that he had heard tell of all of its exploits turned out to be really quite small when he finally saw it. Yes. Um, Fronsack and company are then dismissed from their task since it's already been carried out. At this point, at the end of the second act, the film diverges from any recorded history and what unfolds is a fictional third act full of intrigue, treachery, heartbreak and violence. But more on that later in the spoiler section. In the meantime, we have many aspects of the first two acts to discuss. So let's start with uh, costumes and sets and photography, the drama, the sex, and the fight scenes. In other words, the look of this film. So I'm going to shut up now and let uh, Alastair and Sharon talk about uh, how this goes about looking like it does. That's an incredible synopsis, Alex. (laughs) I was trying to make it detailed without leaving people going, hang on, what, who? (laughs) Seriously, I've been sitting here going, God, I forgot just how good you are. That was amazing. <laughs> Thank you. I am pretty good at synopsizing, if nothing else.
1: I, I have um, one thing to say about the look of this film, and that is red. My <laughs> God, there's a lot of red in this film.
0: Again, it looks great in HD. So much red.
1: There's,
0: there's a lot of red coats. There's a lot of blood. There's a lot of red. The colour of passion. Mm-hmm. I, I'm going to probably do French accents in this. I'm sorry.
3: It's out of love. It kind of calls for it. Don't worry. <laughs> it.
0: It's a very French film. Uh, so, so yeah, the the look.
2: Thing. Yeah,
1: the the. It's not exactly, I wouldn't go so far as to call it colour theory because I think the whole the nobles and the gentry are all wearing red is fairly Mm. standard for the time. Yes,
0: peasants couldn't afford red clothes.
1: Yeah, uh, ah, although if you look at how several of the Romani are dressed, they do have red in their costumes but it's a very sort of faded, Mm. almost like a dark pinky.
0: Dyed with berries.
1: Exactly. Um, and then you've got uh, elements like Marianne, for example, although she's part of the gentry and so she wears red the same as everybody else does. Her red is a much more kind of vivid scarlet orange kind of colour, whereas uh, you, you gradually start to realise as the story carries on that if somebody's wearing kind of that, that deep blood red, just, just keep an eye on them. Just, you know, just watch.
0: Yeah, just, you know. <laughs> Marianne wears red.
1: Do we have to keep an eye on No, no, I just said she's got like a vivid orangey red. Oh, right, that, so Scarlet. That makes her like, yeah. distinguished from the, the rest of okay. them. And I do mean them with a capital T. Yeah,
3: it's a big, <laughs> big yeah, big them. Um, Alistair. The thing which really jumps out at me um, when i going back through this is, and this is actually one of the posters. Uh, this is a movie which knows exactly what it's doing in one very interesting way with the diversity of its cast, mm-hmm. and also farts all over itself in the other way. Which is... <laughs> I've which, which never know, the, heard that uh, phrase before. Just, just the whole thing of, who are these? Gypsies. Oh, they're gypsies, they're evil. Yeah, they They'll do. Kill so. you.
0: The song I'm playing for you now is literally called Mani and the Gypsies. That's the uh. thing, like, it's not only... Uh, Because we can reveal this now. Not only is it like, oh, we've got to watch out for these gypsies. They're being persecuted by people who hate gypsies. And you're like, ah, see, so we're going to find out by the end that these are actually the only noble people in the land. Nope, they're all scumbags. We have not advanced one millimetre from Bram Stoker's Dracula.
3: Exactly. You know, (laughs) the poster is uh, Manny and Fronsac Mm. dressed exactly the same. And they have these massive high collars up. Mm-hmm. And Looking at it right like now. What we call as, as, as the tricorn hats of action, which means that you can only really see their eyes. Mm-hmm. And like ninjas. Yeah, like ninjas. So there's this instant kind of, what? And then when you look closer and you realize Frontac is a chonky french gentleman and manny is one of the greatest martial artists who ever lived and you go oh my goodness this is odd this is weird i like it
0: there's, uh- there's another poster where it's uh they're standing back to back and manny <clears throat> is naked but for a loincloth adorned with Tattoos and face paint with this gorgeous, uh, like, you know, just male specimen. And then Fronsac's there going, I've got this leather coat. And he's got these two massive daggers. Uh, uh, Vincent Cassel, you know, uh, wearing bright, bright red. And, uh, uh, you know, with this, with this crazy gun with a special hook around it so that he can use it with one arm. And um, uh, uh, Monica Bellucci holding this sort of razor sharp fan. It is like the front cover of
3: a Soul Caliber. Exactly. The only movie I've ever seen that plays this gleefully with expectation uh, is Man with the Iron Fists. Mm, yep. And I would argue this... Uh, I like Man with the Iron Fists. I mean, any movie where Russell Crowe gets to yell, My name is Mr. Knife! It's <laughs> <all> the way- <laughs> <laughs> I forgot it was in it, <laughs> uh, But this has a lot more going on for it and I kind of love that it just runs headlong at everything mm. and gets a lot of stuff wrong but it never slows down and I really respect that Whereas It doesn't it want to feels... let facts stand in the way Good
4: lord Exactly
3: It feels from this kind of vaunted position three quarters of the way through this absolute dog's ass crack of a year as one of the first in one of the kind of first movies to surface in western popular culture that was like Inclusiveness, diversity, non-white viewpoints. Are you going to do them well? No. (laughs) (laughs) No.
1: But we're going to throw enough of them at a wall that some of it's going (laughs) to (laughs) stick. Yeah, exactly.
3: This this feels like a first step, and and I, I can kind of forgive it a lot for that, I think.
0: It's a period drama, and it goes about a lot of its real estate as a period drama. There's a lot of um, wooing and schmoozing of the, uh, the, the the gentry, and sort of you know, uh, Fronsac talking to them and charming them in in banquet halls and in in ballrooms and things, and 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 being like I say, very courtly. Uh, but it's sort of peppered with scenes where like Mark Dacascos will be like fighting in slow motion in the rain, in like you know, Christophe has, like made his actors and stuntmen kick about in the mud and if you've got the uh blu-ray that has the uh documentary on it there's like a there's several documentaries of it one of them is seems very focused on the stunt work and like uh, if you're a stunty and you're listening to this you know who you are um then you'll probably get like that that feeling that when you're watching it of like wow this guy's not particularly helpful to his uh, his stuntmen actually do- doesn't tend to listen when when they question him like he says okay I want you to fall st-. like he says to Mark DeCacos one of the most physical actors in existence <laughs> I want you to fall straight flat on your face with your arms out like splayed like that and DeCacos is like I'm not sure I understand am I not going to look a bit like a cartoon like that's going to also it might hurt and he's like no you do this do it my way and then <laughs> We'll just... He
1: will not use those exact words, but he heavily implies
0: it. I, it. Whenever he's questioned, Gans tends to be, well, we'll do it once and see if it works in a kind of, look, <laughs> I've got a vision I'm for dead? this. <laughs> and then like, when, when they're doing the, uh, the the makeup on Dacascis, uh, the original design is just a black triangle. And then Dacascis is like, "Right, well, I'm just going to make this like massive mess on my face. <laughs> and uh, you know, maybe if it's like, loads of chaos, and he's like, mm, yeah, I like your ideas, but let's have none of those, please. <laughs>
1: James just sat there with his arms folded going... Nope, mm.
0: No. Nope. Honestly, I think he's achieved a hell of a lot here for someone who doesn't seem to be particularly receptive to the ideas of others mm. and might not actually be that brilliant to work with. Uh, but uh, in the end, the actual compromise between the initial, original, like dark black triangle on Manny's face and the sort of the wolf claws that uh, Dacascus D- was making with his um, his ideas is a, is a kind of a wonderful uh, hybrid of various minds all at once and it just feels like uh, you know all, all the director needed to do was maybe be a little bit less keen on throwing up walls and going nope we're gonna do it my way also just there's certain bits where like uh, Vincent Cassell is is like I've got to like use this very sharp dagger and I've got to make this vicious downward slice on my own clothing and I've got to stab this into my balls if like this is an actual cutting knife he's like well maybe use it safely moving on and it's like <laughs> but uh yeah no, there's there's lots of fighting and flinging uh, of people around in a way that would if you came in expecting Barry Lyndon be really off-putting so it's kind of a, a jack of multiple trades and uh, something that's really not going to deeply satisfy anyone except the people who are looking for something very unusual, which combines these flavors in, 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 a, in, in a sort of film that is hard to market, was hard to market. It made like 70 million or something, which is small potatoes in uh, uh, blockbuster terms. It made like the second highest since 1980 at the time of any French film overseas. But it didn't just like hit the huge time. It didn't. Like, you know how back in 2000, just a year before this, like the art house scene was raving over Crouching Tiger. It really was the talk of Croydon. And um, people were just enamoured with the fact that Ang Lee had legitimised martial arts films. Mm. This could have been that, but it, there is just a smidge too much juvenilia in there to really hit that. But it's fine, because that's what this film is.
3: Yeah, I I get that. I think the the, the whole... How can I put this? This... I actually think you've nailed something really interesting where this does feel like both a progression from Crouching Tiger and an attempted at evolution of it. Because obviously Crouching Tiger is a very specific version of a very specific thing. And this feels a little bit like someone went, could we do that but French? And yeah, you can. And it becomes, as you say, this profoundly weird film where... Nothing happens that you expect, but a lot of the things that happen are really interesting and in a lot of cases very well done. We have a
0: rule on this podcast of never saying interesting without going into why it's interesting, but I
3: Trust you will be doing that. I can actually give you an answer on this now. Which, go for it. Which does main, maintain our, our, our third act rule. Um, there is a metaphor that, that Henry Rollins uses beautifully about how when he was in Black Flag, he would like to, he'd like to play Queen records for friends in the punk scene, and how nine times out of ten, one of them you know, would go, "This is really good. What is it?" And you're like Queen and he would watch the look on their face. And he said the best way I could describe it was like I had put I like I made this guy an omelet. And he gone, "This is really good. What's in it?" And I gone, "Dog." And his initial response was horror followed by, "I guess I like dog omelets now." And <laughs> it's very much that kind of thing. It's like, "What is the it hell? The- <laughs> it, it 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 is. It's it's like, a, "What the hell is this? What the hell is going on?" Why does Monica Bellucci have a razor-sharp warfare? Oh, I'll just go with it. Yeah.
0: Still, I eat one of Henry Rollins' omelettes. It's delicious, but then he tells me that I just ate dog. I'm puking both for accuracy and distance.
3: And it's so exuberant and so completely enthusiastic about everything that it just wins you over. Think, gutsy.
1: Uh, yeah, it is very gutsy and a big part of it is, um, and, and weirdly enough this was one of the things that frustrated me a little bit watching the behind the scenes stuff is that the, the casting of it and the, the selection of the team players that put this together, many of the elements that make it up seem perfectly chosen to do the specific thing that they want that person to do. So you've got uh, Mark Dacascus as the uh, the character who's going to fling himself about all over the place and get mm-hmm. involved in fights, which Mark Dacascus is extremely good at and look fantastically attractive whilst doing so. Oh by my way. god, which Mark he's D'Caskus beautiful awesome, in this. Oh
3: yeah.
1: Um, you've got somebody who's going to be a remarkably seductive and terrifying courtesan. Well, you'll want Monica Bellucci for that, obviously. And
0: again, again, beyond perfect beautiful in this for the
1: role, absolutely perfect. You'll want, uh, you want you want this um, this thing that's chasing all of these peasant girls around the French countryside. Well, obviously, we want the Jim Henson Creature Shop uh, to be involved in that.
0: Although, in one of the uh, behind the scenes, one there was this, this guy who was like, many people believe that the Jim Henson Creature Shop is only to create muppets, but we are so much more for, than that. It's not just muppets, Dad. <laughs>
1: Yeah, there is a bit of that. Um, but, But you see what I mean? They seem to have gone out of their way to deliberately pick disparate elements that you wouldn't think would go well together. But,
0: Strawberries and pepper.
1: Exactly, but mm. because yep. they all do the specific thing that they are being asked to do so well. Oh, we want somebody French and creepy. Get me it's Vincent Cassell.
4: Cassell. <laughs>
1: <laughs> And then you blend all these things, and it's it he is... came out
0: of the womb smirking. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Absolutely, um, smoking and a is...
0: Galois inside a chateau.
1: <laughs> it is a little bit overwhelming and and i completely understand why it did not do gangbusters initially. Hmm. Um, it only made
0: 11 million internationally. Yeah, well. That's nothing really.
1: It, it's it was uh, 11 million in the US.
0: Yeah, in the US. Was, so. But uh, again, 70
1: million was all told.
0: All like in in, in comparison to what yeah. was doing gangbusters at the time. Like the matrix had just made a kajillion.
1: Absolutely. Um, but but yeah, it's yeah. It just seems like such a difficult sell, and it's silly, and it's over the top, but it's um, it's kind of it revels in that silliness, mm. and it never goes half-assed when it could go all-
0: whole-assed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you'll get the whole oh, ass here. And
1: there are asses. Oh my god, there are many, many asses. Um,
0: um, there's, let's look at the beast and how it's portrayed on screen up to the point where it turns up at the farmhouse. They're actually quite... We mentioned Jim Henson Creature Shop, but they're fairly coquettish with how they show it. They don't want to um, give you the whole thing in one... It's it's a it's a strip tease, effectively. They're, mm-hmm. they're, they're giving you a little bit of... Bit, Jaws, again. Like, they give you a fin. Um, and, and you're aware that this thing is huge and terrifying.
3: The thing which I really I, like, and um, which is actually was one of the first things that struck me when I saw this that horrifying amount of time ago and when I rewatched it is they actually map your understanding of the creature onto the understanding of the characters Mm. because it's played so close to the chest because we see so little of it you're actually slowly learning what it is the same speed as everybody else and that very subtly takes away some safety yeah and I, I really responded to that. I thought that was really smart.
0: Keeping it mysterious was definitely a great idea. Mm. The, uh, the, the the whole idea that, like, well, what, he, what is this thing? Because yeah. it seems like, well, this is not a
4: wolf.
1: Well, and that as well. I, I know exactly what you mean about the uh, having things uncovered at the same pace as the characters, Alistair. Because the, the fact that the two people that they bring in to try and address this problem are... Um, uh, Fronsac is uh, a naturalist and a taxidermist. He is educated in the ways of creatures mm. and what they look like and what they can do. And they have this brilliant joke where he's at a dinner party with all of the, the posh people. Gentry. The gentry. Gentry. And Gendre. he is talking to them about mysterious creatures that they've never heard of. That and he's, he's come across
0: in his travels. That he,
1: exactly. And he's discussing this Canadian... Fish.
0: The furry trout. The furry trout? <laughs> Stop sniggering at the back, folks.
1: I was just going to say, when he says it, I'm just sat there thinking, you know he's sniggering behind his hand.
0: And one of the noble women is like, oh, it's like mink, yeah. it must be but cold that, up there. That's the
1: thing, he talks about it first and they're all like, oh no, there's no such thing. And then he produces this supposedly stuffed fish in a box, which mm. has clearly been made out of a, a, a furry creature, but is not actually a fish. And everybody's like, oh, wow, I, I get the water must be so cold up there, this is why it has to have fur.
0: He says its Latin name, Furious yes. Troutus. <laughs> (laughs)
1: Something along those lines. But then
0: he says, and then uh, he says, lies seem real when they're said in Latin. And then he glares at Father Henri Sardie, the priest, in a kind of, I'm on to you. But this is
1: kind of your first setting up of education versus, well, uh, this is what I know, so it must be true, mm. which is one of the key themes of, of what the film sets against each other in terms of the, the central conflicts. But as well as from Fronsac's educated perspective on animals and what can exist and can't exist in the world, you've also got Manny, who is coming from much more ancient and natural background and his understanding of the natural world and the creatures that live in it is very different to Fronsax but between the two of them they seem to cover an awful lot of ground so the fact that you've got these two men who are both very knowledgeable from different angles but in the field of wildlife and, and what animals should be out there in the world attacking or not attacking shepherdesses And they're both baffled and that's what kind of gives us this setup of, oh, oh, well now I'm baffled. Everybody said it was a wolf, but it can't be a wolf because both Fronsac and Manny are going, "Uh, wolves don't do that.
0: I was thinking about it, you put Manny and Fronsac together, you have much more of the perfect man than they were trying at with something like, say, Zardoz. Yes. Or Demolition yeah. Man. Indeed. The whole, the, 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 um, I hate to use the term educated savage, but they play the noble savage characterization of Manny in a kind of, it, this is a response to... A century worth of filmmaking where um, tribal people were portrayed as not being very bright, mm-hmm. being very superstitious, yeah. being and in fact, the- walked all over by uh, um, Westerners and colonialists. Uh, and and just the, the, the flip side of that was to bring on the equivalent of the wise old black sage, where it's like, we've got a lot to learn from these people. And these creators are trying in their own clumsy way to make the people that have been previously dismissed seem like well no they actually have it much more switched on than we do Mm, yeah which is it's it's a step in the right direction Mm. towards being able to humanize yeah it's still stereotyping
1: and it needs to be moved beyond Mm. but it is at at least moving in the right kind of flow
0: but what i was describing of the the two of them basically being like if you combined them into this yin-yang they'd be the perfect dude but under those circumstances uh, François should be wooing Marianne and Manny should be seeing Sylvia behind closed doors so that they, it's not just this one pig seeing two women
1: <laughs> he's just taking all the girls um, the, the Manny is
0: just like I am, you know, Manny also uh, utilises the services of courtesans hmm. but he, he keeps him, his emotions uh, away from uh, the yeah. idea of romance he doesn't seem to need it
1: hmm. but the, uh, the the dismissal of um what for want of a better term i will call native wisdom mm-hmm. is is even alluded to within the text of the film
0: because yeah, uh, that's somebody, a lot of prejudice directed towards Manny nobody absolutely. trusts him and it's not it's kind of like a zeem in robin hood prince of thieves oh, it's a your lot painted friend in.
1: Yeah, it's a lot like Azim in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. But it's, um, it's not just Manny, there's a, a, a moment where uh, Jean-Francois, who has travelled himself, and he's been to Africa, which is one of the places that um, Fronsac wants to go but has never been, and he they, somebody asks him what the natives there are like, and he's kind of looking down at the Romani and he says, like here, stupid and suspicious. Uh, or uh, Sorry, stupid and superstitious. And he's kind of dismissing that whole segment of society as useless.
0: Is this the uh, the French Jeffrey Jones?
1: Who, what? Who asks him the question? Yeah, uh, I believe so. It's part of the hunt- when they're out on the hunting party, they're just they're just. It's another
0: thing that makes me feel like this is a lot like Sleepy Hollow—the presence of mm, Jeffrey Jones yes. and and Le Jeffrey Jones. <laughs> <laughs> The film is very much on Mani's side. Like he, he is pretty much flawless. He, he does the right thing at all times. He's quiet the whole time, which allows everyone else to flap their gums and be thought a fool.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and uh, Mark Dacascus
3: does a hell of a lot of eye acting.
1: Yes, yes, he oh, does. Yeah.
3: yeah, and it's the weird. It, it's it actually highlights a really weird dichotomy in martial artists who step across to acting mm-hmm. uh, in that de understands instinctively that he has a range within which he's extremely good mm-hmm. and you and I mean because we've got John Wick 3 relatively recently you can actually look at him in two radically different points in his career mm-hmm. and see that the thing which he's got better at or the thing he's got more comfortable at is dialogue yeah that in John Wick 3 you actually, especially if you're familiar with his work, you actually get the kind of extra thing of he's talking. Why is he talking? He never talks. What is he planning? He's
0: kind of like Keanu Reeves himself when he starts to talk. He's got this whoa kind of like... He's not quite whoa, but like as one of the double dragons there's quite a lot of bill and ted going on well, there. well he's
1: hawaiian as well and yeah he's so, hawaiian as well yeah
0: so when he finally talks heart to heart with john wick he's like like i love you dude or something along those lines and 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 keanu's like i'm past that stage in my career i think <laughs> <laughs> ted on the horizon beckons
1: i mean there's a, there's an element of the fact that he's acting in french in this which is not Gonna have been easy <clears throat> for him, but he has I a, a, a neutral—he has,
0: he has a neutral kind of uh, American-ish sounding Hawaiian accent. Mm-hmm. He's got a very soft voice. He's kind of enthusiastic like this, and mm-hmm. and that does not come across in it. like he has totally transformed himself into this like silent noble. Um, Alistair, you you've um. Must have read 1604, the Neil Gaiman yes. re-imaging of the yeah, Marvel yeah. Universe. There's a character in this reimagined Marvel Universe in Elizabethan times called S- Rogers, who's this uh, white noble savage, and uh, it takes a while to go, Oh, I get who he is. <laughs> but it's, it's neat the way that turns up. But ultimately, he's basically playing the same character here. Yeah. this sort of like... Um, very, very stoic, very like serious, striking fellow. Who's um, he, he's seen by François as an equal. There's never any sense like everyone seems like you know he's your man, so he's like your valet or your butler. And Fonseca's like, nah, this is my partner. We, we've been through a hell of a lot of stuff together. He yeah. talks about the, the when they were in uh, the Americas, the captain of his party gave infected sheets to the uh, natives, and then they just go and uh, mop up several weeks later after everybody had died of these unknown diseases to them. And uh, he, he refers to this with this grim face as, this was our defeat. The idea that we may have won that, but that is a loss of the soul to win territory with that level of underhanded, vicious malice.
3: And how, how interesting it is for a character who is presented as a scientist, mm. as a man of, of rationality and evidence, to be so in touch with that element of his ethical framework. Yeah. Especially as, as you pointed out, he's a massive horn dog. But yeah. He's a pig. <laughs>
0: I, I, it almost seems like uh, he's like, okay, got Marianne going. Uh, now where can I get some sex? <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs>
1: Um, he, he, does, he does strike me and the, the whole folding in of the, uh, the the bookends of the French Revolution I think are quite telling in terms of the, the themes that are contained in this part of the story. Because Fronsac strikes me as being pretty much the epitome of the the bourgeois weight behind the French Revolution the idea of the enlightenment and the you know we we need to throw out religion and we need to you know get get beyond this whole we do things the traditional way because that's the way we've always done them and that's one of the reasons why I find the folding in of Manny to his to Fronsac's perspective on the world so fascinating because they would seem to be directly opposed to each other But they're really not. They are both um, looking at the world in a more authentic way than the two elements that they are opposed to, which is the very wealthy uh, traditionalists and we're going to do things the way we always have because that means that we get to control them and the very... Uh, dumped upon poor traditionalists who are we're going to do things the way we always have done because yep. God said so mm-hmm. and we're just totally superstitious and we only know how to do things one way and it scares us if you try and ask us to do it any other way
0: there's a feeling like the old world is being very Swept aside, and a, a sense that this is happening in a violent fashion as well. the The fact that it starts with the French Revolution automatically places a seed in your head as to, to um, well, it's it's fairly obvious to most of our listeners that the uh, the, the uh, aristocrats in this spe- specific scenario might just have something to do with the beast, and the suggestion seems to be that they've manipulated the people through fear. Uh, specifically fear of uh, the women folk being um, mm. killed by the beast. It yeah. specifically seems to but be going after women. But it only after goes women. after
1: the poor because they're disposable in terms of setting up the, uh, the framework of mm. their control.
0: But it doesn't seem to be that particularly uh, inspired of a plot because they aren't... Did they hire Frozak? Is Uh, he sent by the king? The the king
1: sent from... Because
0: he's like, hundreds of people have been killed by this beast.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and people are starting to lose faith in the monarchy because they're like, well, the king should be looking after us and stopping this from happening.
0: Shouldn't the gentry be like, okay, there's a beast out there and only we can save you from it. That's how you do this power play.
1: They kind of try that. I think that's Mm. what the whole hunting all the wolves is all about.
0: Yeah. So FrontSec just arrives at the point where they're like, look, we, we caught a wolf. That must have been it. And now we'll
3: call off the attacks. Yeah, Which at the risk of being depressingly timely is essentially the um, period French version of everywhere's locked down, but pubs can stay open. Yeah, there is that. You know? Uh, and it, it it doesn't matter if what you do works. It matters in these people's minds if you are seen to be doing something. yeah. The illusion of strength
0: definitely seems to uh, to run through this. as does the uh, that I tied up the superstitions that this uh, that that are on one side of this um, tug of war in the film uh, with just conspiracy theories because the, the the conspiracy theories are like the new. Those sort of dark ages versions of, um, not even religion, just just uh, folklore almost.
4: Because of the beast.
0: They say it's as big as four cats and it's got a retractable leg so it can leap up at you better. But you know what Ted, it lights up at night and uh, it's got four ears, two of them are for listening and the other two are kind of backup ears. ears. Its claws are as big as cups and for some reason it's got a tremendous fear of stamps. Mrs Doyle was telling me that it's got magnets on its tail, so as if you're made out of metal, it can attach itself to you. And
2: instead
1: of a mouth, it's got four arses.
0: But Being able to make up all sorts of crap, because it's actually much more interesting than the miserable mundanity of just, this is a bunch of rich people trying to secure their wealth. Mm, yeah. It's always just that.
4: Is, it's always just it's, about the money.
1: Yeah, yeah. In in any situation like this that that's being set up, you that whole follow the money thing. Mm. It's just it's so clear when it's being strings are being pulled. Right, who's the rich people at the top?
0: Who benefits? Can we
1: check them first, please? Yeah,
0: and uh, like I said, it doesn't seem to be that. Um, Cut and dried in terms of that the gentry are the ones stepping forward and saying it's okay, peasants. We'll protect you. We've brought. Really, it should be that Fronsac himself is hired by them, and the whole point is that he's supposed to put on this big show, mm. and then they catch the beast, and the people feel like you know what the gentry are okay. But the implication at the beginning is that after thirty years, the peasants go, you know what, the gentry aren't okay. Let's guillotine them. <laughs> So uh, like, really, it's, it's like you can play this trick and you can play it again and you can play it again. But eventually the people will tire of you and remove your head from your body. Mm.
1: I think as well, one of the specific angles of this, and I I think this is something that you can only really play in a a French environment or an environment mm. where you have also had very strong twin pillars of power in... Uh, monarchy and church Mm. and that is the sense that those are two you've effectively got two wealthy sets of people who are squabbling over who gets to hold all the strings Mm.
0: but uh, like I said earlier there's a uh, feel that the old world is being swept aside and the old world is the superstition but it also comes hand in hand with nature there's a a real through line in this movie of that there is real nature and real magic associated with that nature that is being ignored Mm. or trampled in order to accomplish a progress which will only advance a few
1: yeah I i think the way it comes across to me is that there is a distinct line being drawn between the old world in the sense of old civilizations and traditions Mm. and the old old world which is pre-civilizations and traditions and that is epitomized in uh, a a little bit further along there is a dream sequence when uh, Fronsac is in bed with Sylvia Mm and he visualizes her as kind of like a nature goddess if you look at the imagery that's around her she's uh, twined in with trees she's got a, a dagger which has um it's almost like a hunter stag head yeah. on it and he's terrified of her the imagery of her in that that sequence is extremely scary because it is unknown to him at that point point. and i think that kind of it made me think that he's not quite been able to reconcile the natural world and scientific reason, but they are not opposed to each other. Mm. He just hasn't worked out how they overlap and blend yet.
0: And one of the first things that we see when we go back to Gévaudin uh, from the uh, 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 French Revolution is this white wolf just uh, who kind of keeps reappearing throughout the uh, um, the proceedings. And it seems like this nature spirit, like it represents the wild itself. It's very notable that France and England and just Europe in general kind of hunted wolves to extinction around about this time. And there's a a, a, a horrendous scene um, in the first act where like 60, 70 wolves get shot out of the forest and there's this giant pile they had to use composites of, of, of just multiple wolves piled up show these mounds and mounds of carcasses just in the name of clearing out the forests of all of this savagery and this white wolf um, that they encounter at this old templar ruins Fronsac and Mani and uh, Marianne when they've been riding that they go to shoot it, and then Fronsac pulls her rifle up in a kind of, nope, not that one. And there's this wonderful shot of Mani just sort of looking at the wolf, and as birds fly past him in slow motion. It's very like John Woo. It's, it's John Woo, but at the same time, it's more in touch with nature than John Woo has ever been. And it's this kind of, wait, wait, wait let's not shoot this thing, it's not actually a threat to us and then the, the white wolf pads by slowly and just goes off it's, it's this watcher and it's benevolent in nature but at the same time it does turn up at the end in a very satisfying way
1: Yeah, I did feel <laughs> like they were maybe trying to seed a connection between Marianne and the white wolf at hmm. that point
0: it's a, the, the view of wolves uh, by natives is that they are something that has been put on earth that does the wolf thing. And it will only attack humans if it's sick and wrong. And by and large, most tribal cultures will uh, just step aside and and, and not want to interfere with that and and get, um, use it in a a totemic sense to to be able to learn from nature. And that is threaded through uh, everything that Manny does regarding his version of magic.
3: That, that scene weirdly put me in mind of the end of The Prestige. Um, there's there's a, It's a really weird little moment, but it's a moment towards the end of The Prestige where um, the, the trick is presented to a theatrical booker for the first time. And the, I forget the exact dialogue, but, but the, the crux of it is that this guy basically looks at what they've done and goes, oh, okay, I get one of these about once a decade. This is an actual magic trick. You're actually working magic. Mm. I need to book you a little differently. (laughs) And it's this moment where the film just brushes up against this huge concept that it doesn't quite look in the eyes. And the White Wolf stuff in Brotherhood of the Wolf kind of put me in mind of that, in that the nature of what Manny and Frossack do is they're out on the edge of society in every way, all the time which means every now and again they run across stuff like this. And it's like the Piper at the Gates of Dawn chapter in Wind in the the Willows, it's that moment where if you do this work for long enough, something very odd will happen and how you deal with or understand that extremely odd event will tell you a lot about who you are.
1: But it's not something that you could necessarily communicate easily to exactly. Someone else because they have to have had their own experience of it and see it through their own perspective so that it can tell them something about themselves
3: exactly from her point of view it's a white wolf mm-hmm. from Fronsac and Manny's point of view it's oh okay no See, i always uh, associated
0: um, Piper of the Gates of Dawn with Pink Floyd. I didn't know that came from Wind in the Willows. Oh, I'm familiar gotcha. with the, the uh, um, Cosgrove Hall version <laughs> of Wind in the Willows over the
3: book. It, it, there is this chapter, and it lands just smack dab in the middle of the book. And it is genuinely one of those things which, when you hit it as a child, you just go, oh, okay. And when you come back to it years later, you go, what? Where they... Ratty and Mole spend the night helping out looking for a missing otter child who's gone missing. And they chat and they hang out. They they do Ratty and Mole stuff. They're an adorable, you know, Aziraphale and and Crowley but animal couple. And um, they find the kid. They find the kid fast asleep on the legs of Pan, the pagan god of nature. And Mole is like, what? And Ratty, if I remember correctly, basically has this moment where he goes, shut up don't say anything, kneel. And they kneel in supplication to Pan, who looks at them and smiles and gently hands them the child back and disappears. And it is never talked of again. Whoa. And it's, it's this genuine 40-year moment in the middle of this classic children's novel. And it's that same kind of thing. It's that, that kind of... That is what we do not mess with. That is what we tip our hat to you and go good afternoon and make sure that we hold eye contact until we know it's gone i love stuff like that
0: i love just hearing you talk about that that gave me <laughs> okay um, i think we're now at that time folks where everything after this what we, what we talk about we've kind of pretty much plumbed the depths of uh, everything that we could really talk about from uh, acts one and two without kind of over, over-egging the pudding on the themes that we've already established, we need to develop those and for that we need to go to Act 3 mm. so everything beyond this music will be spoiler territory and we will develop this whole thing, but effectively it involves the uh, uncovering of the beast and who's behind it
1: I'm just going to add, before we do uh, okay. move on to that bit, that the the final facet of these two acts is Fronsac being pressured by the representatives of the king to create this taxidermied beast. Yeah. And yeah. it's
0: the it's beautiful lie.
1: Yeah, and he, and he he hates having to do it. It frustrates him because ultimately all this really is if you think about it is a magnified version of his furry trout. Hmm. So we know he's not averse to doing that for the sake of a joke. But what he doesn't like is is it being used and the lie being continued for the sake of control. Mm. And I think that comparison between those two moments, he'll do it for a jest as long as he gets to tell everybody Afterwards, by the end yeah. of the sentence that it's not But really. he
0: doesn't want it to be a lie that abides. Exactly. And he doesn't want to be part yeah. of that. Because
1: that's not scientific. To him, the, the purpose of exploring nature and exploring science is to find truth. <sighs>
0: This is why that it baffles me that that is the 11 minute chunk that gets cut out of the international version because <laughs> it's like a lot of people won't even have seen that bit they'll be like what Stuffed wolf mm. but it's totally there yeah. it's in the longer version
1: but the conversation between uh, between Fronsac and the the King's men is is really quite strained because although that's where he takes his money from and that's his employer and he you know to an extent he does as he's told and wouldn't be who he is without the the patronage of the king um there's a couple of lines in that exchange that just seem um to wind him up more than any which he's he's talking about well times change and the guy says not here they don't here we yeah. keep things the way we've always done them. Here we keep things under the thumb. And uh, the, other is, <laughs> the other line is
0: Revolution gonna
1: The other line is one must govern by simplicity, which is we've got to reduce this to a an explanation that the peasantry can understand. It's patronising and it's frustrating, and he hates it. Hmm. But he goes along yeah. with it at this point.
0: Okay, so uh, after the music, we will continue. And before we leave, special mention in this movie must go to the sound effects. Specifically, whenever the beast turns up, there's so much clanking and grinding and breathing and thudding and growling. It's, It's just, you hear it more than you see it and that conjures all kinds of things in your mind, which, when it attacks, makes it, An augmented force of nature. Going back to The Beast and how I mentioned it before, we actually get to see it a lot more now. And uh, the, it runs about the place using very early 2000s CG, designed, I think, or at least assisted by uh, Jim Henson's Creature Shop. They did a animatronic version of it, which is just required to stand and move a little bit. Uh, and the, whenever it moves around, it's this shocking... Like, um, just beyond Lost in Space level uh, CG that thankfully only takes up maybe a minute of screen time all told. Unfortunately, it's this key aspect of the film that kind of, like, that is the bit that's dated the most about the film because Mm -hmm. they couldn't do beasts that looked this... Mm. realistic i mean that the host by bong joon ho was like a, a step up from this in terms of creating a beast that could leap about the place that actually felt real mm. um, in cg
1: i do respect them for recognizing what their limitations were with this because mm. i have a sneaky suspicion that a big part of the design of the beast which as as you start to see more of it it's all teeth and spikes mm. And the, one of the things that Fronsac has found so hard to put together is that from the, the evidence that he's seen of what the beast is, uh, he refers to it as a creature of flesh and iron, and he can't work out how the two go together.
4: Yeah.
1: And um, it, gradually we start to see that it's it's covered in, like, armour, and it's got these huge, almost like fake
0: augmented jaws, jaws yeah that
1: go around its own face yeah. and i have a feeling that a big part of that was they couldn't do fur at this point mm.
0: i mean fur was uh introduced in uh toy story 2 as practice for monsters inc that came out this year that's how like new to cg fur was absolutely but yeah. that's
1: pixar that's the experts
3: yeah you're right it's it's kind of a shame, and yet really appropriate that the, the weirdest moment and the weirdest element of the story is the one which is also dated the most. Yeah. It almost it's almost analogous to that kind of. And it turns out it was a lion wearing a, like an early saw trap on its face. <laughs> oh, and and Franzak has a little bit of that disappointment as well when he. I, I really like that his response is horror at what has been done to this animal, yeah. and perhaps the tiniest little bit of relief. That this is something natural, yeah. And there's a lot to be said as well. I think for how the the nature of the villains is such that just having a lion running around the French countryside eating buxom shepherdesses isn't quite terrifying enough. No, twist it further. The the yet yeah, the coded malice. In, no, it has to be cruel. It has to be something demonic. Could we make it something demonic? You know, give them an and trap
1: well part oh, of it give her an
0: the, iron trap it's a lioness
1: part of the purpose because what what comes out as the the third act unfolds is that this beast is under the control of uh a section of the gentry gentry uh in, it's
0: not all of them it's surprisingly not all of it them it turns out a, marianne's yeah. father isn't in on it's it not involved. and yet her mom is
1: and her brother, Jean-Francois, is like, he's not even the brains behind this outfit, though, is he? He's like, he's the arm.
0: Hmm. Jean-Francois,
1: <laughs> Ironically.
0: Jean-Francois, as it turns out, was mauled... Was a wrong
1: Who What a thunk it? Was
0: mauled horribly by a lion in Africa hmm. and uh, had witch doctors work on his arm or something along those lines or something slightly less racist than that uh, to create this
1: slightly, weird,
0: scaly, long fingernail, like, kind of... Cr- Creep arm that he keeps hidden behind his back and inside a bodice that he has to kind of rip out of when he reveals this to Marianne, whom he is obsessed with, besotted with, in love with, to the point where he ends up sexually assaulting her in a really uncomfortable scene he's he's been having impure thoughts about her for years and he can't seem to shake them. And uh, Father Henri, Henri Sardis is like, oh, okay, we're going to have to kill her then to purify her. But before she can drink the poison milk, uh, Jean-Francois turns up and literally reveals himself to her several times over.
1: One of the most terrifying moments in this whole film for me is mm. when uh, Jean-Francois and Sardis are discussing this And it's it's all kind of very subtle. They don't say explicitly what they're planning to do. Um, But uh, her mother walks past. Here's what they're talking about. And they look over at her and she's kind of, she's shaking. She's
0: got this look of horror on her face, but she's like sort of, yeah, Yeah, we got to do it. Kill my daughter. She's too pure for this. She's never going to be in for it. Mm. And uh, it's a whole mess. She ends up not being killed, but being assaulted throws her into a... um, uh, effectively apoplexy mm-hmm. for uh, an indeterminate amount of time yeah. she is effectively in a coma
1: but the uh, this this group of the wealthy are using this beast which is a, a i think when they give the explanation of it. Jean it's Francois one from the litter, litter of the one that Yeah, he brought a pregnant him. lion back from Africa yeah. and when the cubs were born they kept one of them mm. and nurtured it to be cruel and vicious and aggressive. Twisted it. Um covered it in iron spikes and sent it out against the people. The idea being to create this kind of demonic presence to bring the fear of God back into the people because they were starting to put their faith in the king rather than in God. The church. And the...
0: Sardi is behind all of this. S-
1: Sardi, yeah. Sardi is, is a huge element of all of it. But I get the impression that he thought that because he was doing this in the name of God, initially he thought he was going to have the support of the Pope and the Catholic Church in Italy would be like, totally, yeah, that's brilliant. You, Sardi. You are the man. With your we crazy theatrics
0: you... and putting the devil himself on earth Absolutely. to scare the life out yeah. of the peasants. We're going
1: power and we're going to be so pleased with you for doing all of this. That turns out not to be the case, no. funnily <laughs> enough.
0: Even the Pope is like, well, steady on.
1: <laughs> exactly. Um, and ultimately it ends up being, rather than being backed up by any wider authority, this um, this pack of... Wealthy, masked individuals A few bad apples This cult, this clan, if you will um, Turn out to be uh, Effectively just like Trying to snatch all of this power for themselves For the
0: greater good
1: What a surprise
0: (laughs) How
4: can this be for the greater good? The greater
1: good. Shut it! Uh, I'm gonna have a heart attack and die from not surprise. And it
0: felt like Scooby Doo finding out that this is—it uh, was just a lion after all. Because there seems to be so much magic involved in it in the first two um, uh, acts, but then it's like, oh, what? Well, you know, let's just see who you really are. But as you said, there's there's more going on there, and even Jean Francois doesn't seem to comprehend. Uh, what, what's really kind of uh, on an elemental scale uh, actually going on here with, with what they're throwing out there to terrify the people. And honestly, Jean-Francois reminds me most of one other character from a comic book, that yellow bastard, uh, the one from Sin City, in that he's like the, the apple of his father's eye who gets um, you know, horribly wounded at the beginning and then he gets regrown by witch doctors into this living creep who just harbours all of this bitterness. But somehow, Cassell makes Jean-Francois seem this pitiable wretch. Like, he's got to die, but at the same time you feel sorry for him, whereas that yellow bastard is just preposterously evil.
1: Yeah, I think the, the moment that comes across the most is actually uh, after he's been killed, or he's, he's basically lying on the ground mm. dying, and he kind of... There's this moment where he, sh- he sh- rolls to the side He's
0: doing a snow angel in the dirt
1: And pulls his uh, Bad twisted arm. arm underneath him So that it looks like he's missing it again And yeah. it's almost like in, in his moment of death He wanted to be entirely human again hmm.
0: Which is problematic, obviously, for people who have any kind of... Um, uh, Arm-related birth defect, well, but no.
1: But what I mean is that this was—it's like this was the arm that was possessed. This is so the bad he wanted arm. Wanted to pretend it wasn't there. Yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, uh, and he calls out to Marianne at the uh, very end as well, because he's uh, decided in his, uh, um, you know, from from the darkness he's been residing in, that she is this bastion of purity, which, by the way, he just defiled. And poor Marianne, she gets told about Fransac's infidelity by Jean-Francois, who is jealous and attempting to keep her for himself, which hurts her terribly and she ends things with Fransac, which he of course feels incredibly bad about. But then while she's mourning the passing of this relationship, that's when her brother reveals his twisted arm and his twisted intentions to her. It's no wonder she passes into apoplexy. She doesn't have a fantastic time of it in this. This is why I would label everything Jean-Francois feels for Marianne as obsession rather than love, because if he loved her, he would spare her this pain rather than piling
3: it on. He's a very, very very interesting character because in a lot of ways what he actually does is perfectly embody the film because he's this really smart and unusual idea which appears at times to have been written by just mashing the keyboard and seeing what happens. (laughs) You know, it's just... I I love Vincent Cassell. I, I've watched many Vincent Cassell movies. Some of them have been good. He is good in all of them. Um, Wasn't he in re-
0: Guesthouse Paradiso?
3: Yes. awesome bottom movie, yeah. Yes. Uh, he also absolutely takes, like, a champ being owned by uh, by Danny Ocean and Co. Oh, yeah. In Ocean's... Yeah. It's he did the Capoeira in that as well. Yeah. It, it, it's, either, it's either 12 or 13 where, where you know he has the ridiculously over-the-top mm. heist, and they're just like, no, we just nicked it from his bag a week ago. Cassell is is very, very good when he's asked to do things, especially good when he's asked to do things that he doesn't normally do. There's an overlooked, surprisingly great horror movie called Underwater, which was released about 15 years ago in mm. February, uh, where he plays the captain of a damaged deep-sea oil rig and it's this really mournful button-down performance and he's great in it he doesn't leer or, or do capoeira or anything it's really good here he's very good the part is not you know the the fact that Oh, i actually, just
0: realized what you meant by saying 15 years ago it was released this year it just feels yes. like it's 15
3: years ago <laughs> very good the, the the part is horrifying mm oh, he's, he's evil and because he's lost an arm. No, he's evil because, as you say, he's been healed by strange medicines. Oh, and he's a bit incestuous. And, oh, oh, put it away, Vince, come on. <laughs> you know. it's just the, the, the version of JF you get in the first two acts is much more interesting than the version that you get in the third. Hmm. And it feels, it's one of the very few points for me where it feels like the film does kind of go, oh, him. Yeah,
0: they wanted a pure evil, and they uh, at the same time they also wanted someone who was uh, flawed and wretched. Mm. So he's kind of like somewhere between Gollum and the Witch King.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, your pure evil is Sardis.
0: Yeah,
2: and of and
1: his his end is incredibly appropriate because he manages to slip away from the battle that ensues mm. and and where like the the gentry that don't get killed get arrested
0: and he's running around the mountainside like the flying nun with this Absolutely. entirely in like inappropriate outfit and there's a whole bunch of wolves chasing yep. him in a and kind they of just
1: come up revenge. over the hill like my old friend sandys we meet again and
0: the white wolf <laughs> is leading them in a kind of a cracks knuckles <laughs>
4: okay then Wait.
0: but the actual the, the the thing that will really blindside you about this film that doesn't feel expected when you see it the first time, Manny dies. Manny is murdered. And this is after they've conducted a really striking hunt for the beast. They go from uh, this, you know, this the, the, the landscape goes from snowy and there's this gorgeous shot of Monica Bellucci just lying naked on a bed as the camera pans over her body, just going up over her Shapely breasts, which turn into mountains, and then we get the sort of beautiful frozen countryside. But we can still just see the ghost oh God, of her face that. on the, to, to one side, that's and she like is,
1: my favourite shot. It's
0: so gorgeous, but like you know, it's smutty but gorgeous at the same time. But like that's like the, the, there's a, a femininity to nature in this, and it's just being it's frozen, it's asleep. But then when they go back to hunt the beast, they're in this sort of like tropical. Paleolithic wilderness in the same place,
1: and and overlapping with the ruins of the Templar stronghold. So you've got that kind of civilization encroaching on this natural.
0: And this is after they've done the uh, wolf stuffing, and uh, um, uh, Fransac uh, and the Marquis go, okay, let's like we've heard of a new lead on this beast. Let's go find it, and then they start. Just trying out their weapons in this scene with pumpkins, where it's like, like you know, two pistol, John Woo, and the pumpkins are exploding, and this like arcing ropes of orange jizz, and it's It's um, like
1: you do know pumpkins aren't just like gourds containing Mm. pumpkin soup,
0: right? Right. Sight and Sound, I remember, said that this scene is pornographic, and I was like, it's not really pornographic, and then this female statue gets pumpkin juice splashed all over her face, I was like, it's a bit pornographic. (laughs) Um, But, uh... (laughs) Yeah, Sight and Sound did not care for this film, understandably. But, um, the critics
1: didn't seem to know what to do with it, did Roger
0: they? Roger Ebert thought that the Magpie and Monica Bellucci were the same person. Yeah,
1: yeah, he did.
0: There's a point where Monica Bellucci, who is in fact a papal assassin sent by the Pope to um, sort out this mess. ridiculous mess, meets the Magpie, who's betrayed many of our uh, heroes, including Manny, to his death, and then slashes her throat with this razor fan... At what point did Roger Ebert go, this makes perfect sense? <laughs> <laughs> but like I said, Sylvia's boss is the Pope.
3: You're jogging? The Pope? Oh my God.
0: They, they they go hunting for it and Manny strips down to, to just uh, this um, uh, set of uh, uh, leather chaps and, you know, face paint and and, and they, they take peyote and they get in touch with nature and there's the wolf song and dance and
1: Technically, uh, the marquise takes P-O-T takes P-O-T. passes out.
0: Passes out. Um, <laughs> but then when they, they, they catch it, it's this incredibly violent predator-like, you know, springing the trap scenario. And, and Manny does fantastically well and then gives chase. And is then cornered by Romani people who he then has another fight with and pretty much beats them all. But then Jean-Francois shoots him in the back. And it's horribly implied that he's also tortured before the end. And they... They just fling him over a cliff in slow motion and he just goes cascading down in these dead leaves and Dacascas' hand is sort of reaching up as he's not quite dead as time passes in the forest and then Fransac finds him and... It's this really moving scene. He howls silently as this, uh, that you can just hear just the underneath of of a howl in the uh, soundscape. And there's this terrible wound has taken place as this, this was the brotherhood of the wolf. I mean, like, you know, you could just point at this cult and go, well, that's them, but ultimately this, they were brothers and it's clear that taking this away has absolutely mortally wounded Fronsac.
1: There's there's also there's that moment when uh, Manny is dying and the wolf turns up and it's almost like she's come to fetch him. Yeah. But absolutely. The, the way this segues into Fronsac's response, this to me is what really makes this in terms of it being an action movie. Because in your in your standard Hollywood uh, my partner got killed and i'm going to go and get revenge which is basically what this is the your hero character would literally get up from kneeling at the side of his fallen mm. brother and he would hurl himself straight into it
0: successful roaring rampage of revenge
1: exactly all in the space of a night because of course you know trauma and grief don't have any impact on how we respond to these mm. things that is not what Fronsac does he first off when he finds manny there is that that something primal that is unleashed in him, but he takes the time to wash his body, to examine him. He ends up using there's, there's this moment of of mirroring where he uses the same tools that were employed to create the false beast, which you don't to, get if
0: you watch the shorter version. Yeah, you don't get yeah.
1: if you watch the um, shorter version. But he uses those tools to um, to find and and dig out the the. Ball shot that uh, Manny was killed with which obviously is what tells him that uh, Jean-Francois is behind this and this is it almost forms part of a grieving process for him and then he goes back into the Templar stronghold and he goes through the, the catacombs and he kind of finds out what's going on he finds the print room where they've got the they've been producing this little red book of the myth of the Beast of Gévardin to, to kind of spread it around far and wide um, he has another Barney with the Romani as he goes through. Barney?
0: He murders them? Not
1: all of them, he comes back to do that later um, but uh, but yeah he, he goes Goes up against several of them while he's down there. And then he stops and he goes back out because it's daybreak and he has to perform Manny's funeral. And it's just this, there's a pacing to it that I really, really appreciated. The idea that grief has breath and revenge has breath, and dealing with the things that are put in front of you, there is a natural in and out to them that he is now really starting to embrace. And it's almost like the the, the passing of his brother enables him to take those elements of uh, of communion and brotherhood with nature that Manny carried within him anyway as, as like a part of who he was, but Fronsac was struggling with, now he takes them into himself as, as a, a as a way to honour Manny and B as a way to be able to reconcile that whole I don't get how the flesh and the iron work together oh right, now I do mm. and we see this visually because he then changes his clothes and dresses in a a, a style which is much more similar to, to how Manny. Manny dressed and he uh, uses Manny's face paint to create his own design and like I said you have this wonderful scene where he... he um, Performs the funeral, um, and, and this is all his preparation for going back in. Of course, it gets interrupted by the fact that he then gets arrested and poisoned, and all sorts of things
0: happen. Yeah, the, it gets interrupted, and he is officially killed, but then comes back as a ghost, effectively. You got as,
4: better.
0: Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, Sylvia, who is basically now Milady from the Three uh, uh, Musketeers, mm-hmm. uh, uses a uh, drug to induce a death-like state, which he, she then brings him back from, so he can be her arbiter of revenge. Uh, and he basically gate crashes that shitty, for the greater good, ceremony in the woods, and just tears everyone a new asshole <laughs> with his spinning blades of doom, which we hadn't seen until
3: now. <laughs> I I love that whole section because it's not, not only as as you pointed out is it so very careful and aware of what it's doing, but it finishes with being not remotely careful and aware of what it's doing. The movie from from, from a kind of action sequence point of view, the movie justifiably gets an awful lot of acclaim for De and he's he's a martial artist in the most literal sense. Watching that man move is beautiful. I actually prefer Fransac's fight scenes towards the end because he fights like an angry tank. Yeah, There is no art to it. It is... Some, something which I found has come out in my own writing in the last couple of years is an exploration of... the challenges of being a person of size. You know this, you've met me, the listeners don't. I'm 6'2", I'm north of 300 pounds, I, I am basically an ambulatory wall. And balancing that with my intellect has been an element of my life's work today. And I respond very well to big guys who are physically capable and also clever. And there's a real emotional resonance to Fronsax not brutality but the in those those last couple of fights, but the moment where he very he seems very clearly to have like to switch in his brain and gone, I am not clever for the next half hour of my life. I am large, and I am very hard to kill. And as a means of channeling grief, it is extraordinarily powerful because you get the physical catharsis of him basically putting people through walls. And you also get the thing which he gets, which is that this won't do anything. His friend is still dead but this is the only thing he has the capability to do. And it it doesn't quite get there, but it tries to explore the idea of futility in that, those final sequences. And I really admire that it tries that. I knew there was a reason we got you on. <laughs> <laughs> that
0: was magnificent, thank you and uh yeah that's that's what lies beneath the interesting folks the uh yeah the the depth that even i hadn't uh, been able to um i've seen this film a dozen times or more and i've never really uh, reckoned quite so much on the the, the state of uh, ...futility that he's, he's going through at this point... ...he ends up fighting Vincent Cassell... ...who has got literally the ivy blade out of uh, uh, Soul Calibur... ...this is the only time I've ever seen this exact weapon in a movie... ...and um, watching the documentaries... I, ...one of the visual artists was talking about... Uh, ...how they had to create this thing digitally... ...because it just you wouldn't be able to safely get the shots of him swinging it around... ...and then throwing it past Samuel Libyan's face in order to, without actually actively endangering the actors. And, you know, he's talking about how they they had to sort of create it in a 3D space so that it could look, you know, as close to the real thing that they scanned as possible. And then at one point, you know, he's saying, Sol Calibre. And the subtitle said, Excalibur. And it's rare that I understand someone speaking more than the person (laughs) who's translating it. (laughs)
3: That's brilliant. <laughs> By the way, I think I actually applauded when when the sword came out yeah. in the movie theatres. I, I think I just went, "Yeah, okay, sure." <laughs> He's like, I've got one of these things
0: just strapped to me, just, you know, in case I needed to, to engage anyone in the duel, I just have this on me at all times. <laughs> um, there There is a sense of purification at the end, you know, no matter how futile it was, after Milady goes, thank you very much, Fronsac, that was some good uh, fighting, now get out of here before I kill you. Um, he gets rained on, and it, as the daybreak uh, comes, and this is uh, as he goes to pick up the last of Manny's ashes, Um I do appreciate the fact that they actually had uh, Manny's body up on a uh, scaffold. That is very much in keeping with certain tribes' uh, rituals, and the, when he exhales at the end of that, you know, massive, dazzling fight, there's this kind of,
4: oh,
0: sort of, this out breath, as what you said about uh, grief breathing. Uh, and then he goes to Marianne, who is in, a, uh, who is comatose, and uses Manny's bracelet, which was employed earlier to bring a girl back from a similar uh, level of um, incoherence, to just to, to, to just to bring her out of the darkness. And this then starts to blend with the young Marquis, who luckily was sort of not really party to all the violence uh, in all of this. He pretty much just got high, saw the beast for a bit, and then uh, was told to wait there while uh, Manny was uh, killed. But this this sad scene plays out where um, Fransac is with uh, Marianne. The fact that her father wasn't in on it and is by her bedside, uh, it's a really reassuring element to suggest to Marianne, you aren't just from wickedness. Like, there, there's yeah. an, an element of your family that was nothing to do with this and does care about you and does, you know, wouldn't have, like, clearly is good enough that he wouldn't have been brought in on it. Um, and, and just, you know, up until this point, clearly ne- neither mother nor uh, son had decided to bring either of these two paragons in on this uh, horrendous... Um, Plot this conspiracy, but as the marquis is watching it happen, the uh, Mary, uh, Marianne and, and Franca kind of melt away, and then he sort of lo- he's old again, and he looks out of the window as the sun sets, and then goes down the stairs, and he's the one good uh, member of the uh, French aristocracy, uh, and uh, you know his servants are all incredibly sad to see him go, and you know he sort of goes out, you know with stoicism and nobility towards this this crowd who spit on him. And it's like, he's now being taken away to be killed and thus all memory of these events will be snuffed out. So it's kind of, it makes what you've just seen precious. And, and the, the, the old man who plays the young Marquis is sort of brings that back with a measure of dignity that almost the rest of the film didn't necessarily earn because of all the silliness but at the same time, with the way the music's playing, with the imagery that's going on, it, it ends on this sort of wonderful bittersweet note, but it's still not the end end, because then we go to the beast and its final moments. And Do you want to take this one, because I'm falling apart? <laughs> yes, okay.
1: Um, so uh, the Marquis and Fronsac go down into the catacombs one more time, and they find the beast... Uh, in the hands Back of the, the old healer. Yeah who was ultimately who nurtured it and and hmm. in it. The only
0: Romani of character it, it would appear well, in yeah. this film. <laughs>
1: um, and, and sort of I did like the f- f-
0: way by the way that uh, Fronsac diagnosed his uh, um, daughter with uh, epilepsy or was having yeah, a seizure. Everybody,
1: yeah she has a seizure and everybody thinks she's a witch because mm. of it because that's apparently what people thought in those days and uh, Fronsac's like eh, she's just just make, sure she, a fit, bite just her to make sure she doesn't swallow her tongue and she'll be fine. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah so the healer is is there with the beast who is obviously very badly hurt
0: has been shot several times and and, uh, injured with this massive swinging spiked thing
1: yeah Um, and in this moment what i love about the visuals in this is that they never there is no pulling back to give us a view of the whole beast it's close up and it focuses on her eye so that you can see very clearly that there is this Creature underneath all of this twisted metal and uh, manipulated bone, there is an an animal who is hurting:
0: and Fronsac is able to um, reach in and, and caress the side of her face and actually touches her teeth and mouth and she doesn't bite at him. it's mm-hmm. just simply it's dying yeah. she's dying and there's
1: And he has to put her out of a misery. And it's a very quiet, almost peaceful moment. It's it's not. It, it's done with as sort of as little violence as as can be had in a pistol shot at the end of the day. Um, rifle. Sorry, rifle shot. And yeah, that's that's the way this myth is
3: put to put rest. To sleep, put yeah. to
1: rest. Yeah. And the fact that after the revolution, Gévaudan uh, ceased to exist. The, uh, the province was renamed and effectively disbanded and, and put back together again as something different. So everything about this story just passes out of memory.
0: Hmm. And there's a, a wonderful epilogue where the um, Marquis pictures... <laughs> Because it's it's only in his head now. Um, pictures Marianne and uh, Fransak on their way now to Africa on a uh, an old um, sail ship, and it's this just moment of healing uh, as they scatter Manny's ashes over the side. Again, it just it feels extraordinary to come from this film, which is so poppy and so. Daft and 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 gruesome and and sometimes way too exploitative. That it has this, these moments of stillness and these moments of of melancholy beauty. But it really won me over from the first time.
1: Yeah. And if I read it correctly, the name of the ship that they are travelling on is the Hope Wolf.
3: Oh, I love that.
1: And I had never noticed that before.
3: In this this whole thing is a lot, isn't it? I mean, yeah. if if you had to boil it down, Brotherhood of the Wolf is a lot, and <laughs> some of it is entirely crass. I mean, you know, the the just the spectacular, as you say, literal geographical uses of Monica Bellucci's cleavage mm-hmm. at several points. I'm just the other point where I applauded, by the way, was the "Hello, I'm Monica Bellucci. I'm a hooker who's also secretly a spy for the Pope." <laughs> here is my razor-sharp warfare. And I was just like... That's a direct quote, by the way. (laughs) You're jogging. The pop. Oh, my God. Yes, thank you. (laughs) Uh, And it it is so unsubtle and so just big in every way uh, until it's not. And then it's just so good at those quiet moments, those quiet, meaningful things. And I just... I I would have. It's this, strange this to say. I would have loved to have seen a sequel, and I'm actually really happy we didn't get
0: one. Yeah, I, I agree on both counts. It, I think it's um, it's kind of <clears throat> perfectly what it is, in its imperfection, and uh, it's the kind of thing that really. I, I'm, I'm surprised Gans didn't make loads more films after this, but at the same I, time, I'm not surprised. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh,
3: I'm, I'm I'm right there with you. I, I came out of this going. This is a fun new action director I'm really looking forward to, as it turns out, watching his four movies in the intervening 19 years. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, know, he's, he's really, really good at this. And I can only guess that he's also very discerning. So, yeah.
0: <laughs> Maybe he only works when he absolutely needs to. How terribly French. And he has something very much just boiling in him. As you listen to this, I am currently re-releasing one episode per week my 2016 audio drama, Arlington. This features Captain Annie Oakley's hunt through the wilderness for the manticore that killed Vice President Rutherford B. Hayes in scenes very much inspired by Brotherhood of the Wolf.
5: There is a kind of quiet in the wilderness that steals away your civility and emptiness presided over by ancient trees and animals red in tooth and claw, going about their cycle, caring nothing for the comings and goings of the humans who totter from their cozy houses and find themselves enveloped once more in the primal world. This was why I brought Carl. As the most uncivil of the soldiers I had met, it fell upon him to remind me of basic, rough humanity. Besides which, his obvious fear, developing now, might prevent me from doing something stupid. Like trying to spend the night in this cold, unforgiving place. So, we bickered and grumbled at one another quietly throughout the day, always avoiding the subject of this possibly being our last hours on Earth. As a cartographer, this is something you're expected to be able to weather and and slowly come to terms with on your own. Most of us don't like to admit we're not there yet. In the late afternoon, Carl laid an unexpected dose of genuine on me.
2: Why are you doing this, Cap?
5: Same as we all do it. I didn't want to stand by and do nothing.
2: But why are you doing this? Why chase the beast that killed someone you cared for?
5: It killed a lot of people I cared about.
2: So is it revenge? Revenge for Hayes? guy was pretty useless. Is it worth your damn life? Is it worth mine?
5: He was vice president. I'd say even as a mediocre leader, he was going to affect potentially thousands of people in a positive way. He was valuable to America.
2: But he's dead now. Around our way, we call that throwing good money after bad.
5: There you go with your idioms again. I'm throwing my good money into this because I don't want more dead leaders that thing was sent in on purpose, then we could expect more.
2: You're a leader. An alive one.
5: I ain't that much of a leader.
2: Is this about feeling like you failed? Is that it? Cap, nobody... Nobody could have expected that thing to turn up then. I saw bullets hit it and just kept on coming. Who are you to hold yourself in such high esteem?
5: I was supposed to keep him safe. You didn't see the look in his eyes when that lion grabbed a hold of him. There wasn't no blame or anger at me. He just looked so scared. Like a little child. Bewildered at what was happening. If if it were a wendigo, sure, he'd have been plenty afraid too, but he'd have understood. And I'd know what I could have done to maybe kill it in time. The least I can do here is find out what it is so as the next person gets gets eaten knows the score. I don't know about you, but I'd go to my deathbed better if I understood the terms.
0: Arlington is available in its entirety on Bandcamp, and each episode will be remastered and re-released on the New Century Multiverse podcast feed throughout the first half of 2021 The New Century Multiverse and School of Movies are kept going by Patreon and if you're at the $15 level you get a shout out and a name check every single episode So a huge thank you once again to Aaron Lecluze, Abel Savard Alex Outridge Alex Peregrine Angus Lee Benjamin Hoffer Brian Novak Cassandra Newman Chris Finnick Brotherhood of Christopher Wolfe Kieran Dashler Connor Kennedy Dan Mayer Dan Hetner Daniel Salguero Dave Hickman Dave Sheeley, Duran Barnett Evan Jankowski Finbon Nicole Greg Downing Jameis Enright Joe Gassiga Joe Crow Joel Robinson Johan Clayson Joseph Gluck Kat Esman, Kevin Veey, Lorraine Chisholm Mark Lux Matthew A. Siebert Matthew Webb Michael Haskell Scott Jacob Sarah Montgomery Tim Rosensky Timothy Green Toby Jungius Trey Contreras Tom Painter and His Holiness the Pope
3: You're jogging! The Pope! Oh my God!
0: Okay, so before we go... Uh, Alistair, uh, would you yes. like to tell the folks at home where they can find the work you are most
3: proud of? Yeah, um, I'm going to cheat and give you two. Ah. The first one is the, the the work I'm most proud to be part of, which is Escape Artists, the podcast company I co-own with my partner, Marguerite. We do four podcasts, Escape Pod, uh, Pseudopod, Podcastle, and Cast of Wonders which do science fiction, horror, fantasy, and YA, short fiction, respectively. We've actually just got our first ever official print anthology coming out. I think... Well, I'm, I'm talking to you from the middle of October, and I believe the, the first Escape on Anthology is published by Titan in about a week's time. Um, and I host Sudapod, our horror show, and I love doing that. It's a job. I have held longer than any other, including out in the real world. And the other thing I'm really proud of is my weekly newsletter, The Folded. Mm-hmm which arrives every Friday at 5pm and is a download of pop culture enthusiasm it's basically stuff I have found in the week that's good and interesting sometimes there's really long form essay work in there Uh, sometimes it's uh, three or four little reviews but it's always varied it's always different Um, the one which is going live again as I speak to you uh includes everything from there's what i'm hoping to land is a convention report from a really really good con that just happened and there's also a special report from a guest writer on a frida Kahlo movie and also maybe a thing about um a really really good pulp novel so i do a, i cover a lot of ground with it and i have a lot of fun doing it
0: thank you alistair and you will find links to those in the show notes folks And we are going to leave you with the amazing finale music composed by Joseph Loduca, who uh, did the entire score, and the song Once from the end credits by Felicia Sorensen. And we will return next week. I've been Alex Shaw.
1: I've been Sharon Shaw.
0: And School's Out.